Our mighty Lord in heaven, weighty and startling truths await us in this passage. And do we approach them asleep, comfortable, self-assured? Catch our attention, O Lord, and keep it. Move by your Spirit to humble us, to instruct us, to warn us, to encourage us. Be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, when someone hears God's word and responds blasphemously in vile contempt and rejection and dismissal and mockery, well, we know that's bad. That's obviously a bad response. But what happens when somebody hears God's truth and really doesn't respond? Maybe says, well, that's nice. Or maybe says, well, thanks for sharing. Or maybe just says nothing at all. Non-committal. Apathetic. What happens then? Well, we see what happens. Jesus will show us what happens in today's passage. And showing us, he will teach us alarming truth. So let's look together first, Roman numeral 1. How in summary fashion, Christ first exposes the crime of three. That's what goes in those blanks. Crime of three in verse 20. So we've just had the section where Jesus speaks of those who are uh, trying to play games with God. And when God sends a, a prophet with his word, they just always find fault with the approach. They always find fault with the style because at bottom they just really don't want to hear God's word. And so we read now in verse 20, Then he began to reproach the cities in which the most of his acts of power were done because they did not repent. Well, there's a big change coming in the flow of the Gospel of Matthew here. In this passage, this passage shows it to us. These two chapters in particular show it to us. And to understand it, we've got to first understand its premise. Its premise. We see that in what has gone before in the Gospel of Matthew. The premise of this big change. Remember the lead up in the, in the first ten chapters of Matthew. Chapters one and two showed us Jesus' background. The gospel of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. And so the genealogy shows that Jesus is the rightful son of David, an heir to the throne of David. And then in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus is born to a virgin of the house of David who marries a man of the house of David. And in fulfillment of prophecy, he's born in Bethlehem. He settles down in Nazareth. He goes to Egypt and is called out of Egypt after the persecution by Herod. And then he makes his home there in this backwater town. So we see Jesus' uh, background there shown to be to have royal credentials. To have the credentials he needs to have to be the, the messianic king. The king on the throne of David. Next in chapters 3 and 4 we have what I've called Jesus' launch. He launches his ministry in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 introduces John the Baptist, and Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? The heavens open, and the Spirit of God visibly descends on Jesus, anointing him. That's what makes him the Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah. The Spirit of God ascends on him. The voice of God comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus is marked publicly here as the Messiah, the Davidic King, the Son of God. 
Chapter 4, he's tempted in the desert, and where our first father Adam fell, Jesus resists every temptation and comes back from the desert, makes his headquarters at the the town of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, and, and there begins to gather disciples, and there begins to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then uh, that's chapters 3 and 4 showing his launch. Chapters 5 through 7 show us his proclamation, a sample sermon uh, delivered on the mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, beginning with blessed, those who've repented of his preaching and are following him and learning of him. He pronounces them blessed. He teaches them about that righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Repentant kingdom righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is proclamation. And then his demonstration in chapters 8 and 9 where Jesus shows that he has the power and the authority to rule the kingdom of God. He shows this power and authority in three realms. In the natural realm, the supernatural realm, the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, he forgives sins and demonstrates that he has that authority by telling the man to get up and walk, the paralyzed man. He's able to heal at a distance. He reaches out to those on the fringe, touches a a leper, and he's cleansed from his leprosy. So he shows authority in the spiritual realm. In the supernatural realm, takes a man very uh, uh, oppressed by many demons who terrify Uh, The locals, where they are, who have to actually steer course around them, they're so terrifying. But with a word, Jesus sends these demons scampering off to a herd of pigs. He shows authority in the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, but also in the natural realm. Sailing across the Sea of Galilee in a windstorm, Jesus commands it to shut up and stop, and instantly it stops. And not only does the windstorm stop, but the waters, boom become calm. So he has authority in all realms. This is what the messianic king would have to have. Jesus demonstrates that he has that authority. And so what now? Well, we have Jesus' mission in chapter 10, where he sends out and he authorizes and he empowers his disciples to go out and preach his message, to go out and heal and to preach the kingdom of God, the nearness of the kingdom of God. And so they go out and they scatter, and he continues to do the same himself, preaching this word of God preaching in the name of this fully authorized, fully demonstrated king of the kingdom of God. That is the framing in the, in the literature, in the, in the gospel itself. What's the conceptual frame we have to remember? What begins and closes this section? What begins it? Chapter 417. Chapter 417 says, from then on Jesus began to proclaim and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has come near. Matthew 4, 17. And at the end of the section, chapter 10, when he sends the apostles out, where does he send them? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Important, keep this in mind. And to them, they're to preach, repent, the kingdom of the heavens is drawn near. The same message, repent, the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. Well, so now what comes of that? Jesus has his bona fides, he has his, his vita, his resume all in place. He's demonstrated, it's not on paper. It's proclaimed, they can't say they haven't heard it. So what's the response now? That's what chapters 11 and 12 are. And so I just remind you that chapters in 11, 11 and 12 show for us three cycles of rejection. And this is the great pivot in this book. 
three cycles of rejection. And each one of those three cycles has three subsets. Uh, the first cycle is in chapter 11, then the second two are in chapter 12. The first cycle shows people blind to Christ's works, and the second chapter shows people deaf to God's words, and the third shows them deserted by God's Spirit. So this chapter shows people blind to Christ's work, and the first is one sur surprising individual, someone friendly to Jesus, John the Baptist, who himself in prison in a horrible place in his life that we can't even really imagine, the darkness of where he is, takes his eyes off of what Jesus is doing and has a moment of trial and reaches out to Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him? Tell him what he already knows. Tell him the things I'm doing. Tell him my works. John had lost sight of Jesus' works and what they meant. And Jesus just directs his sight back to his works and what they meant and urges him not to stumble. But now what do we see in the, chap in the second cycle that we're looking at today, verses 20 through 24, what we see, uh, we saw the surprising uncertainty of one person, now we see the sinful unrepentance of many people in verses 20 through 24. That's what we're focusing on now. How do they respond to the call to repent? How do they respond to the witness of all Jesus' works and the works of his authorized messengers? How do they respond well, that's what this is about. And in this change, this pivot, it's signaled by a pointer. Three words, I've translated anyway. Then he began. Then he began. Verse 20 says, Then he began to reproach the cities in which the most of his acts of power were done. Then he began. Now that phrase, that simple phrase, occurs three times in the Gospel of Matthew, and every time it signals a shift in Jesus' emphasis or his mission. First time we saw it was in chapter 417. I've alluded to a couple of times. What does that say? 417. Then Jesus began to proclaim and to say, Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is drawn near. So this is the launch of his ministry, the launch of his preaching. That's what it was about. Preaching, repent, the kingdom of the heavens is drawn near. What's the second time the phrase occurs? Right here. The third time it occurs is in chapter 16, verse 21, where after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus says he's going to found his church on that confession and build his church, this new thing, then we read, from that time Jesus began, to, then Jesus began, same words, to show his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem, die, and rise from the grave. So, this is the middle of three signals of a shift, a big shift. Then he began. Uh, a, a great Bible teacher of a generation or two ago named Donald Gray Barnhouse said very well that you could draw a thick black line between verses 19 and 20 to signify the shift in this gospel. And he said the truth flows in two directions from that line, like the continental divide. That uh, before verse 19, his ministry is aimed in one direction, and from 20 on, it changes in its focus. It changes in its aim. And that's what I mean to open up to you today. I'm beginning to open up already to you today. Uh, letter B, then, this big change that we've been looking at, what, what's the cause of this big change? The big change coming is caused by a big crime showing, a spiritual crime, 
a moral crime, an offense against God, and it's a big one. That's what this section points us to, a big crime showing. Then he began to reproach the cities in which the most of his acts of power were done because they did not repent. Now, John in his gospel prepares us for this. His gospel is different in many ways, very independent, but of course it it dovetails with this. But uh, I I remind you of the familiar words in John 1.11. If you've read the Bible much, you'll know these words, John 1.11, John 1.11. In John 1.11, we read, He came to what was his own, and those who were his own, what? Did not receive him. Now that's what we see here. Who has he come to? He's born to save his people from their sins, and he goes out preaching to Israel, and he sends out his apostles to whom? He says expressly, don't take the way to to Samaritan villages, don't go to Gentiles, but go to who? the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. John says he came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And then John says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now we'll look at that second part in the verses to come in Matthews 11 and 12. But the first part comes to Israel. Israel does not receive him. And that's no small thing. That's a massive thing that causes a massive response. So, uh, they're bringing Jesus' condemnation. You notice he says, woe. You notice he doesn't say good things are coming their way. He doesn't say they're about to have their best life now. So what is it that brings that on them? What is it that puts them in this position? What's the huge crime that they committed? Well, we've already seen that they didn't like Jesus' methods. But now we find that they didn't care much for his message either. They didn't like his methods, but they like his message even less. Now I say they didn't care much. That that really kind of says it perfectly because what Matthew says is they didn't repent. So what is it then? Tell me again, what did they do? What was their big crime? What did they do to bring the thundering judgment of God on them, greater judgment than Tyre and Sidon, greater judgment than Sodom? What did they do that was worse than Tyre and Sidon and worse than Sodom? Well, their great crime actually, listen, listen, it's not what they did. It's what they didn't do. It's what they didn't do. And friend, if you haven't learned it yet, learn it now. Sins of omission will send you to hell just as surely as sins of commission. It's not just what we do bad enough. It's what we don't do. And here, it's what they didn't do. When God commands a response, the failure to respond is a no response. No response is no response. Now, I just want to make sure that I hammer that home as close as I can to you. Because I'm afraid many people feel comfortable because they can come into a Christian church and hear a sermon and they don't feel bad about it. They don't have a big argument with about it. Uh, They're happy to hear a Bible sermon. Or maybe I especially speak to children who, unlike me, I didn't have this experience, but you were raised in a Christian family. You've heard the gospel since you were kids. You're used to hearing it. You're used to hearing it at home. You're used to hearing it in church. But how do you respond to it? 
Perhaps you feel safe because you've always heard it and you've never argued with it. You've never had a big problem with it. And you think that makes you okay. But is that the gospel call? Feel okay about the gospel and you're saved? Don't argue with Jesus and you're saved? What is the gospel call? The gospel call is a call to repent and believe. Amen? So what do you have to do to violate that call? Not a thing. Not one thing. Sit there politely with your parents and never think about it. Wait the sermon out. Go home and go back to other things without another thought. And that's the great danger of getting used to hearing the gospel and getting used to not responding to it. It's a great danger. Here were people who had a privilege unlike anybody else. Now, you may not know it, and and I'm not saying listening to me is a great privilege. Uh, God is witness. But hearing the word of God is a privilege. Most of the world right now cannot get together and listen freely to the word of God. Even some areas in our own free nation can't do it openly right now because of government overreach. And in some countries, it's simply against the law. But you get to do it Sunday after Sunday. You can read the Bible, you can go to church, you can hear the word of God. But what does that great privilege do? How does it affect you? Well, great privilege brings great responsibility. As we see in these people who had the Jesus, or the record says, Matthew says, the most of his works of power had been done here. And he rails on them. So I tell you, be careful what you do with the word of God. Child, friend, be careful how you respond to it. It counts. God sees. God judges. So, secondly, Roman numeral two. From the crime of the three, now we turn to Jesus' condemnation of the two. And these are the specifics now. Jesus' condemnation of two in verses 21 through 22. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Because if the acts of power had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, for Tyre and Sidon, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment than for you. Well, first then, we're confronted by the shocking, and here I made up a word. (laughs) And the word is maledictudes. I put most of it there for you, but the first letter is M, And the missing letters are U-D-E-S. The shocking maledictudes and the word is woe. That's what goes in the second quotation marks. Well, what is a maledictude that I should make that up? Well, what word does it sound? Maledictude makes you think of maybe a... That's true. But what what commonly used word starts with a B do we use? B... Beatitude. Well, a maledictude is the opposite of a beatitude. See, no, it's, and it's legit. I made it up, but it's legit. <laughs> I made it up in a, in a legit way. Let me explain. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And so I asked myself, well, what would be the opposite of a, of a beatitude? And I had to make it up. Uh, the Latin word maledictus means cursed. So I figure if beatus becomes beatitude, then maledictus can become maledictude. Anyway, (laughs) and that can be our secret password to get us into these secret activities of our church. (laughs) 
that we, do, that we don't have any of. But, <laughs> but if we do, that would be the one. So why do I say that? Well, what did Jesus preach in Matthew chapter 5 to the people who had responded to his call to repent and begun following him and learning of him? Disciples, what were the first words of that sermon? Blessed, nine times. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But what does he say now to those who did nothing more than not repent? Woe. Woe. And the meaning of woe is the opposite of the meaning of blessed. What did we say the meaning of blessed was? I'm sure you commended it to memory. Uh, blessed is to be in the greatest place, in, in a wonderful place, to be set in God's will for the best good. This is the opposite of that. Woe meaning, oh, what an awful place you're in. Oh, what a horrible future you're facing. Oh, the weight of what's coming on you. Whoa, this is what Jesus says. It's the, it's the cry of the prophets. 20 times in the book of Isaiah, we read, whoa, the Hebrew word, hoy, whoa. How many times have we read it in Matthew so far? Zero times. This is the first, I say. It's a shift. It's a shift. And what brings this word out of Jesus? Nothing. Nothing at all. Just that when he says repent, they don't. Woe, Jesus says. Woe to you. Now, I want to point out before we take another step, this is the actual Jesus. This is the real Jesus who lived, died, rose again, and ascended. This is the Jesus who saves. This Jesus says, woe. He's no one to be trifled with. He's no one to be played games with. He's not a take it or leave it Jesus, not the real Jesus. The real Jesus notes how we respond to what he says. And so when a person repents, believes in this Jesus and follows him, what does he hear from Jesus? Blessed. But when a person ignores, doesn't respond, goes his way like nothing had happened, what does he hear from the real Jesus? Woe. Woe. And so he says it now. Woe. Now let's look together, letter B, at the stinging comparison. It's the stinging comparison. He compares these Jewish towns to two pagan towns, pagan coastal towns, uh, Tyre and Sidon, off to the west of where they are. And by the way, this is one of those little notes of authenticity that shows us that this gospel is written by a contemporary of Jesus. Uh, As uh, Peter Williams writes, the little-known village Chorazin is in fact on the road to Bethsaida, just a couple of miles north of Capernaum. And he says, as far as we know, nobody could have gotten that from reading something. Like if somebody were living 100 years later, 200 years later, making up a gospel, and he wanted to pick pick out some town names, he never could have found in anything written that, in fact, uh, the Chorazin, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, Chorazin is on the road to Bethsaida. He couldn't have picked that up. You had to have been there. You had to have been a local. This was written by a local. So these villages, these Jewish towns, what distinguished them? They had witten, witness acts of power. Now, I, I translate the Greek word a little literally. It's usually translated uh, miracle, but not a bad translation. But the Greek word is dynamis, which literally means power. And in the plural, it means an act of power. So why did I think that it was worth uh, translating literally? Because the point is, these acts show kingdom power. They show that the kingdom of God is present in Jesus. 
And he extends that power to his representatives who preach in his name. And so this is no uh, uh, act of entertainment. This isn't a show, a bit of showmanship or theater. This is a demonstration that the kingdom, which is prophesied in the Old Testament, kingdom in which the lame walk and the blind see and the dead rise, that kingdom is present in Jesus. And so these works of power are works of kingdom power, not just tricks, not, not just meant to catch attention, not, not just meant to, bore, to, to entertain bored consumers, but they were meant to demonstrate the presence of the kingdom in Jesus. They're acts of power, and they're given meaning by what Jesus preached. And so yet, these Jewish towns did not respond to them, so their fate will be worse than the fate of Tyre and Sidon. Paul says, uh, Paul, Jesus says, because if the acts of power had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They didn't have the privilege you have. You had this privilege. And so, verse 22, for Tyre and Sidon will be more bearable in the day of judgment than for you. All he doesn't say, I note to you, he doesn't say it will be bearable. But he says it will be more bearable. It's a matter of degrees, and the New Testament does reveal that there will be degrees of punishment. They'll all be unbearable, but there will be degrees, and the degrees will vary according to how much a person is exposed to. Now, everyone starts off condemned, justly and guilty. There's no need for anything more to make any of us condemned. But the more we're exposed to of God's revelation, the more we reject the greater the guilt, the greater the punishment. And so for them, they'd had a display of God's power that Tyre and Sidon were strangers to. Now, do notice that he, he says that if, in fact, God had done this, they would have repented. And you've got to note, God didn't do it. Now, we'll talk more about this in the next passage, but, but when you see something like this, this is one of those things that show that God is bigger than a lot of Christians are comfortable thinking he is. He's more sovereign. He's less domesticated. He's less tame and safe than even a lot of Christians like to think God is. He is powerful, he's mighty, he's no one to be messed with, and he comes from the perspective that he doesn't owe us anything other than to be himself. It's the only thing he owes us, and in fact, the only thing he owes every last one of us is judgment. Anything beyond that is sheer grace and sheer mercy. And in this case, if they'd had these miracles, Jesus says, they would have repented, but God did not give them that ministry. So when we see something like that in our Bible, uh, our temptation may be, oh, I've got to find some way to tame this verse and fit it into my system. But I caution you and I exhort you, no, no, <laughs> change your system to fit what the Bible says. You do that and you keep doing that, pretty soon you'll end up with the big sovereign God of Scripture who always has the last word and to whom we must give all glory for our salvation. This is one of those indicators. So, from the condemnation of two, then we come finally, Roman numeral three, to the catastrophe of one. The condemnation of two, and now the catastrophe of one. The catastrophe of one, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says in you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted into heaven, will you? You will descend unto Hades. Because if the acts of power which happened in you had happened in Sodom, it would have remained until today. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom 
in the day of judgment than for you. Wow. Can you even begin to imagine how that would have sounded to them? These pious Jewish people hearing that they are worse than the Sodomites and that their judgment will be fiercer than the judgment of Sodom. What a slap in the face. But that's real Jesus for you. So what was their great sin? Well, their great sin was, oh, how timely. Pride. Pride. What's this month in the world's secular calendar? Pride month. I swear I did not plan this to coincide with that. But ain't scripture ironic sometimes? (laughs) Sometimes irony can be pretty ironic, and here's one of those cases. Their great sin is pride. Now, isn't it ironic to take the name of one sin and call a a month by that name to celebrate another sin? And yet that is how perverse we have become in our culture We have one sin celebrated by the name of another sin. And here both come together in this passage as we talk about the Sodomites and we talk about the pride of Capernaum who imagined they'd be exalted into heaven. Why might they have imagined that? Well, they were Jesus' hometown for one thing. Perhaps did they advertise that? That they were the hometown of this miracle worker? They loved how Jesus drummed up business, although they didn't care a whit about anything that he said. But regardless, they were his hometown. And you know familiarity can breed contempt. And so they had Jesus as their homeboy, they would think. And, and well, what does that do for them? Would they be able to say in the judgment, oh, well, I'm from Capernaum. That's where Jesus is from. Like that would be a good thing in the judgment, to be able to say from an unrepentant person. Well... Uh, Look at where Jesus gets these words from. Turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 14 with me. And Jesus is, he's not saying it's a fulfillment of this chapter, but he takes these words, he he lifts these words and applies it to Capernaum. And many of you will find these very familiar. Spoken to, as as I interpret it, the, the power behind the king of Babylon. And the beginning in verse 12 of Isaiah 14 How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, the Latin is Lucifer, light bearer, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Oh, like just just like what Jesus says. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the north of assembly, on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Uh, Now you can see, can you see the echoes of that in Jesus' language? And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted into heaven, will you? You will descend unto Hades. So, Every act of rebellion is kind of a aping, kind of a mimicry of Satan's act of rebellion. Every one of our unbelieving, proud I wills echoes Satan's proud, rebellious I wills. And so in their failure to repent, despite so much revelation, who are they mirroring? They're mirroring, they're echoing Satan's rebellion in the face of so much revelation. And so indeed, although they may have imagined 
that they would ascend to heaven because Jesus lived there. The truth is they will descend to Hades because they didn't listen to him. Because he lived there and they didn't listen to him. They didn't repent. They didn't believe. Familiarity, familiarity did not breed repentance. It bred pride. And that's their great sin. That's their great sin and letter B, their dread certainty. What is their dread certainty? Judgment. You will descend unto Hades, Jesus says, because if the acts of power had, which had happened in you had happened in Sodom, it would have remained until today. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, now this is interesting, isn't it? Who are the, what are the three Gentile towns we've heard about? We've heard about Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon had been conquered by Alexander, but where were they in Jesus' time? They were still in existence. They were still operating. Where was Sodom? Under the waters of the Red Sea. <laughs> it, 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 in fact, is a, it's a figure of speech for um, destruction in the Bible. I mean, it's so well known and so total that again and again you can read in the prophets, you're going to be like Sodom. <laughs> It'll be like Sodom. This will be like Sodom. In other words, that, that's like the, the emblem of total destruction. Something that's been completely wiped out. And so Jesus says... Uh, if Sodom, as offensive before God, with their sins of homosexuality, of pride, of violence, that they would have repented if God had favored them with this kind of ministry. It would still, it would still be existing. It would still stand. God did not choose to give them that, but he did choose to give it to you, and you're not repenting. In fact... So far from repenting, what's the opposite of repentance? You're proud. <laughs> You're proud and not repentant, he says. So, notice something else. Sodom had already been judged. Sodom did not exist, and yet there was still a further judgment for them to face. He says it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment. There was a temporal judgment in the destruction of their cities, but they will still stand before the great white throne depicted in the book of Revelation for eternal judgment. And so uh, he says, again, not that it will be bearable, but it will be more bearable than for you. Why? Because they are exposed to less privilege and less revelation. Enough to condemn them, enough to condemn them, but not as much as you. And you, with all this wealth of, of revelation, you don't repent. Ah, uh, oh. Woe, your case will be so much worse. So, uh, they had been judged, they will be judged. That, that, what does that remind you of, kind of, maybe? Maybe it's a reach. But, I mean, I, it's not a conceptual reach, but I, I'm just saying don't feel bad if, you don't, if, you're not, if you're not reminded of it, if you don't follow my thought process. But Hebrews chapter 9 is what I'm thinking of. It is, uh, verse 27, it is appointed to men once to die, well that's it, right? No. But, but death is a judgment, isn't it? Physical death is a judgment. Yeah. Is that it though? No. It is appointed to men once to die and then judgment. As for these cities, so for you, so for me. And so you see these temporal judgments, these times when you're afraid maybe you have cancer but you don't, or you have a terrible disease but you're healed, or you have a near um, accident of some sort that you aren't taken out, these are warning shots. 
reminding us that that day is coming for all of us. And Romans 2.4 says that the goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. All these warning shots are meant to turn us to our need to repent and get right with God on his terms. But they had that, and they did not. Despite so much revelation, they did not. And there we close for this week, but, but I want to dwell with you uh, in, again, a longer conclusion. Jesus here is confronted with invincible apathy. They've seen miracles like none of us has seen, like no living person has seen, and still didn't repent. I remember a lady I was talking to about Christ once again and again, and she always had these objections, and every time you'd answer one objection, another one would pop up. You'd answer that, and another one would pop up. And so uh, once I was talking with her about the time of Jesus, and she said, oh, yes, if only I could have been living at that time. And I said, what do you think would have been different if you'd been living at that time? Judas was living at that time. Judas saw everything Jesus did. He didn't believe. Your problem is not that you don't have enough reason to believe. It's not that you don't know enough. You don't have enough evidence. It's the heart. And so here we see this invincible apathy. The dead raised, nature controlled. (laughs) What's on TV? And that was about it. No repentance. So this, I think, uh, leaves us with four weighty considerations in conclusion. Four weighty considerations. The first, well, at least. (laughs) If I were a good Puritan, I could give you 47, but we'll go for four. Puritan forebears scoff at me with my measly four, but here we go. The first is, my future is not controlled by my expectations, but by God's judgment. Now that is deceptively simple, but it is against the gospel of our culture. What's the gospel of our culture? You can do anything you want to do. Just conceive it. Just have faith in yourself. Just maybe work hard, although that's becoming less popular. But, uh, you know, be the intersection of enough uh, uh, points of oppression and you can uh, achieve what you want, we're told today. But really, that's not true. My future is not controlled by my expectation. My future is controlled by God's judgment. What did, what did Chorazin and Bethsaida expect? What did uh, Capernaum expect? Chorazin and Bethsaida expected that they could ignore Jesus with impunity, with no bad effect. What did Capernaum expect? They'd be exalted to heaven. This is what they expected. They believed it. Could they achieve it? No, because God judged them. Their future was what God said it was. They could not ignore Jesus safely. They would not ascend to heaven. I'm just like a friend of mine said, All those corpses strewn along the trail at Mount Everest, they were all people who believed in themselves. They were all people who believed in themselves. That's the gospel of our culture, and it's a lie. Future is God's judgment, so the real issue is, are we right with God? Do we repent and believe? If we do not repent and believe, then what we will hear is, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Second, this is a very good am I worshiping the actual Jesus test. This, this passage, is the Jesus you worship like this Jesus? Because this is, this is Jesus. This is the real Jesus. There are a great many people today who worship a Jesus who would never say, whoa. He'd never talk about judgment. He'd never cross anyone's will 
or pride or dreams. He's there to tell you to feel good about yourself and that he loves you and that you can have whatever you want. That's, that's the Jesus of popular imagination. Am I right? This is not that Jesus. If the Jesus that you worship would never say, whoa, would never warn of God's judgment, would never warn of hell, well, then he's not actual Jesus. He's not a Jesus who ever lived, and he's not a Jesus who can save, because he's a myth, because he's made up. This is the actual Jesus. And if the Jesus that we worship does not himself speak of a holy, sovereign God, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because of his God, he could say, these miracles could have brought salvation, but God did not bring them there. But he did to you and will judge you for your failure to respond. So this is a very good, am I worshiping the actual Jesus test? Second. Third, very simply, four words, greater privilege, greater responsibility. First point is my future is not controlled by my expectations, but by God's judgment. Second, this is a good, am I worshiping the real Jesus test? Third, greater privilege, greater responsibility. As we've seen in these villages uh, and their lack of response to Jesus, and so I would say to you, perhaps you are somebody who has often heard the gospel but never repented never humbled yourself, never sought God's salvation in Jesus on God's terms, but you like hearing Bible sermons, you like hearing the gospel for some reason. Honestly, I can't imagine why. I never did. I never had time for it when I was not a Christian, but people do. It comforts them, comforts them somehow. But do you not know that every time you hear the gospel, is you're already in extra innings? The nine are already done. You're already in a sudden death situation. And every time you hear the gospel is one more time than you were entitled to. And how many more times have you heard by now? And when do you think the last, last time is going to be? And what will your responsibility before God be when you stand before him having heard the gospel countless times from your childhood and never having responded? Oh, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I don't want this woe to be your woe. Listen, hear, take to heart, humble yourself, repent. Seek God's grace in Jesus Christ. Do it now. There's nothing more important. But at the same time, I'd say to, uh, well, let me just ask you this question. Do you think that principle stops with conversion? Before I'm saved, greater responsibility, I mean, greater privilege means greater responsibility, but now I'm saved, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, can, I can hear God's word and do nothing with it all the time and everything's going to be fine. I don't have to respond to God's word. God doesn't expect me to respond anymore. I mean, I'm saved. So God can talk and I can just think about all the things that are important to me that aren't important to him and not let his important things be important to me and everything's going to be fine. Is that how it works, do you think? Because that's wrong. <laughs> it does not work that way. It does not work that way. And I want to ask you in a very personal way. How many times have you heard the word of God preached and you've cringed, you've winced because you immediately think of something that you know you need to do something about in your life? just don't want to. No, there it is again. And I say it now and you think about it immediately. Something about your spouse, something about your children, something about your parents, something about church, something about your life. Oh, there it is again. And what do you do with that then? How many times have you felt that cringe? And what do you do with that? You just go lie down until the feeling passes? Like the guy says, 
Sometimes I get the urge to, uh, to exercise, but I just lie down until the feeling passes. <laughs> well, do you get this conviction? I really need to respond to that in the Word of God. I know perfectly well what it says. I know perfectly well what I should do, but I don't want to. Friend, greater privilege equals greater responsibility, and that never stops. It's because of who God is and who we are. Fourth, God takes very seriously how we respond to his words. <laughs> All these flow, as you see. The fourth is God takes very seriously how we respond to his words. So, again, if you're an unbeliever who's heard the gospel and done nothing, God sees. And again, if you're a believer who hears the word of God calling you to obedience, but you just do nothing, God sees. What have you done in the past when you've heard God's word then is what I want to ask you. And I want to ask you, what are you going to do now? Let's take a few moments to pray and think about that and perhaps write down what you need to do and how you're going to do it. And then I'll close us in prayer. Now, Father, these words of God are words of power because they are words of God, and they are to all of us. And what I pray for my friends here, I pray for myself, that we will not learn the skill of having a hard, numb heart, that we will not learn the skill of not listening to your words and not being humble and tender before your words and not trembling at your word. And if we have learned that skill, oh God, help us to repent of it and unlearn it and learn to be tender before your words. Respond in faith and obedience. And I pray for all who've come in not knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, that you'll bring that man, that woman, that child down before you in the humility of conviction of sin, of guilt, of knowledge of your greatness and knowledge of his need of Jesus Christ. I pray you'll draw that person to saving, repentant faith. In Jesus' name, amen.